Hi, and welcome to Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I'm quite excited to welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself, Neil? I am Neil Christopher, uh, Chief Designer and T-Boy at ARM Mercantile and R&D, or Robin's Dad, amongst other things. I do, I guess. It's an easy word to describe. Does that work as an introduction? <laughs> well, normally it's like, I'm Neil, pleased to meet you. It's kind of where I go with it. Let's run with it. Okay. ARN Mercantile. That's a brand from the murky past that a lot of people have heard about, but it's always been a bit mysterious. Um, it was an accidental brand. It was, um, I was working in Japan with a, a Japanese company called Kato, developing denim with them. And we started on a project idea for something along the lines of building collections, I think it's now, building collections for other companies, or I did, this idea of saying, if you are a medium-sized shop, or you're a medium-sized retail outlet, you can't necessarily afford a designer, you can't afford a distributor, you can't afford production, you can't afford garment text, you can't afford all of this. Why don't I bundle this up and say, there you go, I can do that and then build collections for them. But to actually achieve this, we had to, had to build a collection to show people that we could build a collection. Um, so the process of all this was I was working with another Japanese brand at the time, and we were kind of thrown in the deep end with what they were doing, and we booked space, or I bought space in Trinoy through them, all for them, as well as booking a trip to Trinoy, and then it all kind of fell apart. They weren't interested in doing something outside the, outside the Japanese market. And I was left with a space, a wonderful 10 square meters, because they're very generous in Trinoy, uh, to fill it with something. And I was like, well, okay, we've been playing around with this idea for a while. Let's do it. So over the course of probably 12 weeks, uh, grabbing up fabrics from people I've worked with that just basically, I'll use the term very loosely, because I'm sure there's a lot more technical term for it, threw together a collection of uh, like five pants, five jackets, couple of waistcoats and six or seven shirts the details of those i can't remember but offering them in a multitude of fabric options and, and color bright colorways to kind of work this through and invite kind of did it as a way of saying this is what we can do if you would like this for your store these are the color and fabric options you can have please pick wherever you need to pick so and i'd set up some meetings with a couple of the big german company and a couple of american companies to actually do something while i was there on the very first day of the show uh, a buyer came on from a small japanese company purchased Am I doing this well? <laughs> yep. Keep going. Purchased a small order for himself, which is a company called The Globe in, in Tokyo, which is an amazing store. And Mass is an amazing person. Not just because he bought from me, but because he was actually genuinely one of the most interesting people I've met for a long time in the clothing industry. He was a bit older. He had some kids. He did the whole thing. He was just, he was just really focused. He was a chef. We just kind of drifted into this, but really passionate about what he did and incredibly knowledgeable, like properly, like shockingly knowledgeable. And I've always been drawn to people who have that kind of interest in what they're doing. You have a, a long conversation as in the Feld scene and the French scene, and you get very carried away with this. Uh, anyway, so basically he, he bought a very small order from us, and so this is quite nice. And then about 45 minutes later, this huge Japanese store called JetBlue, which has got, I think at the time, like 120 outlets across Japan, would come onto the stand and we're like, oh, right, uh, we want to buy this. I said, well, I've just sold it to someone in Tokyo because I'm a bit stupid and I don't really work that way. When I was saying one store, one country, sorry, one country, one thing, one, one store, one country. And it turned out that Masu was actually their head buyer. 
well, I'm telling this entire huge corporation in Japan, no, 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 no. I want to work with one tiny shore in Tokyo and not deal with you at all. I'd like to be poor. I like not to eat. I like this kind of process, but I'm pure. I want to do my thing. I've got this guy and then told him, no, go away. And like an hour later, Maso comes over and goes, uh, Neil, yeah, they work with me. You can sell to them. Um, we just kind of ended up doing a huge order with them where they went really in deep with what they wanted to do and refocused. And by the end of the day, my idea of building product, a small amount of product, a nice ecological, sustainable product for medium-sized stores dotted around the world became <laughs> brand designer now. I'm guessing, though, that that was the day you sort of put set up your flag, uh, made a success. Um, but there were many, many years leading up to that. <laughs> so if yeah. we sort of wind back in time. That peak bit, uh, didn't we? Um, yes. Um, I kind of started when I was 12 or 13. We've gone back quite a long way. Uh, 12 or 13, my father had, was an engineer, but he'd been working with um, a company called Garrard here that were taken over or a shareholder option was taken in by a company called Twilfit, which is Twilfit Viola, which later became, because it actually became after that, it was a bank of some description, I bet you purchased now. And he was kind of headhunted from his position as chief engineer for, he was an electrical engineer, so he was building stereos, to go and run a corsetry company. Because those As you do? Yeah, because they're the same thing, right? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was, um, shall we say, a, Precocious child, I think, is a is a, a very very polite way of saying it. Troublemaker and nightmare is another way of putting it. And my mother decided, for whatever reason it was, that I should um, spend my holidays working in a corsets factory. Was this with your dad, or no, oh, no, just yeah, just generally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my son would be really well working with bras. Oh, luckily enough, that's what his father does, so we can go and do that. Yeah. So basically, it was get out of the house because you're underfoot work in the factory and so i went to the factory initially to work on the maintenance team basically pushing a broom around in the thing but it was that i was at that age where i was making airfix models and building lego and working with meccano looking at the way to construct things looking back somewhat with rose tinted glasses at the time i was just playing with things that i enjoyed doing and ended up just kind of dropped in the pattern room this is what you do. And back then they used to use these huge, not huge, these metal patterns to actually build the garments. So you, instead of using what paper I use now, card would be actually done, this is X amount of this. My father's company made bespoke corsetry, as he pointed out, for ladies that had operations that didn't want those pieces filled. So the corset would actually have padding in it to replace things that have been taken away and, wow. and, and construction. The, the business had been going since... I would guess the mid 1800s, 1850, maybe something like that. It was really, Spirella Company of Great Britain was one of the oldest companies. The, the company was set up in a place called Letchworth, but what it turns out is the company actually built Letchworth. Okay. Which was the first garden city in the UK. And it was this, it was a, it was a Mormon family that had this idea of, oh, we want to make sure everybody's okay. So they built this, built this factory, brought staff in, bought really nice housing. Well, this whole place is actually quite a beautiful place to go and visit. And the factory is kind of stunning. It was, shall we say, way past its heyday by the, time, by the time my father took it over. Oddly enough, whalebone corsetry wasn't such a big thing in the early 80s. 
didn't you? No, it's uh, kind of went away, didn't it? No, yeah, just a little bit. I don't know what happened there. Not a particularly brilliant business plan. But it, they were working on this. So they were still there. That talent was still there. And then they were also producing mass production, not mass production, but large, large volume production, people like Marks and Spencers. So they were building Marks and Spencers underwear. That was kind of their main thing. But when you used to cut underwear there, then you had to have a metal block. This is where I'm going back to, to actually build the pattern. But you would sit... And the layout was really just trying to get as many of those pieces onto the same fabric to with the grains and these kind of processes. And I just loved it. It was such an amazing thing to do, to go from constructing things three-dimensionally to actually building things three-dimensionally from fabric. And I was sat there, and the designer there was this, oh, God, Les Berth, you still remember his name? He must have been like in his 50s or 60s, which I now think isn't that old. But back then, you're like, oh, ancient man doing things. Uh, but he was working off of like an old roll tech roll top desk in the corner of the cutting room. It wasn't like I'm a glamorous designer, see me suck sugar cubes. It was just a guy working on design in a roll top desk and, a, and like a, a draftsman's easel next to him to build product. And it was really just really interesting to sit there and see the two dimensional becoming the three dimensional and building the product that way, as well as doing the layouts on the fabric. I just became kind of addicted to this process. Like, this is a great thing to do. And then I got a bit older. Uh, I got 16, and you have to go out in the real world because, again, it was the 80s. I didn't go to university. I didn't do A levels. <laughs> My parents were along the lines of, you must get a job and pay for things and get yourself a good career, which I'm still working out whether I can do that. Um, but I ended up being a hairdresser for a few years. Absolutely hated it with a, a passion. It was the, the worst thing I've ever done. And I'm fairly sure anybody's hair I cut at the time would also back up. That was the worst thing I ever did. So it was a, a terrible thing. So I just kind of dropped away and ended up working in a shop, much to my parents, and they will be fairly major players in the early part of this conversation. Uh, much of the most chagrin, they hated the fact that I was just a shop boy, just working in retail. How could you possibly work in retail? And from that, it was a menswear shop called Bedford Squire in Bedford, cunningly enough. I met a guy called Lee who was in New York, was flown to the UK to buy brands to the UK. So I met him at a trade show. It was called MAB, which is in Birmingham, or was in Birmingham at the time. And back then, um, you basically just drank a lot at a trade show. Not like now, where we all turn up and we're incredibly professional. <laughs> you would drink a lot and you would start around breakfast and kind of work your way through and he was buying a knitwear company buying from a knitwear company called h knitwear and i was buying from knitwear h knitwear for the company the store i was working in and i was already drunk and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning and the head buyer of the store i was working just kind of left me there so you stay here don't leave this stand and i will come and find you when it's lunchtime. hopefully you've sobered up enough i was like 18 at the time when you think you think you can drink all day when you're 18 years old and you realize very quickly into that that you just can't mm -hmm. and i got talking to this guy lee there who was there from the states he basically jet lagged as hell and also reasonably drunk at that particular moment in time uh, he offered me a job to come and work with him in america which what i was the new job which i didn't believe just don't know that's that's not a thing that doesn't happen that happens in films and really badly scripted sitcoms it doesn't happen in my life and it was like oh yeah whatever so i gave him the business the company business card because this is the business card this is aging myself quite badly here this gray hair wasn't really doing it for me 
This was before the internet. Okay. <laughs> it's the world that exists. Uh, so I go basically I've gone back to the store, I've not really thought too much about it, and he sent me a fax. Communicated by fax with him for about a month, and he just would fly to Miami. How far back did you go with this, Nick? I might have gone a little bit too far back here. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Flew me out to Miami, which was, um, as a slight side note, one of the best chat-up lines I've ever had in my life. Right? It was like, you and your girlfriend come to Miami. I did not have a girlfriend at the time. I did have a girlfriend by the time I got to Miami. <laughs> I did not have a girlfriend within about four days of being in Miami. Okay. So, <laughs> somewhat whirlwind romance. Hey, you're going to be cute. Do you want to come to Miami with me? Yeah, sure. I've got tickets. So it was that when you used to get like a proper paper ticket for what you wanted to do. So it's kind of he basically paid for me and this girl Lou to go to go to Miami. Within four days, he'd said, you know, I'm my base is in New York. Come to New York and see what we're doing there. It would be great to see you. He was, he was an obsessive guy. He was really interesting. And I was like I say, 18, 19, I didn't really care. So it was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. My body would get washed up on the beach somewhere. It's like, well, that would be what it would be. So I kind of working obviously. So I went to went up from February in Miami to February in New York. Somewhat weather different. And because I'd never been to America at that point, I was really young, really traveled and, and a bit thick, to be brutal. I mean, my idea of America was Hill Street Blues. So I was like, that's what America's like. It's gritty and gutly and fantastic, but also in the same place, I watched Miami Vice. So it was a bit like that as well. So you didn't really have... A, not particularly grounded on how the world worked at that particular point. Um, although I'm fairly sure my 18, 19 year old self thought I was incredibly worldly wise. I definitely was not. Um, how was I? Oh yeah. So basically I just got on the train from Miami to New York, which took like a day and a half to do. It was not a short journey as I stupidly assumed it would be, um, which I got to see a fantastic visions of, the east coast of america which is quite beautiful and then got off in um grand central station i think it was and promptly put on every piece of clothing i have with me because it's looking cold i've come from the beach all espadrilles and miami vice tops yeah the lime green jacket with a rolled up sleeve i had that and cruised into the snow snowland of new york um i'll jump ahead of it because these get very long Basically, Lee had a ragging company. His granddad had a ragging company. He bought loads of vintage pieces, and we just basically were selling the clothes as rags. And Lee hit on the idea of actually selling the clothes into stores. So he had a store in um, just off Washington Square, another store on the Upper East Side. So it was kind of this thing. And he wanted someone to come and help him because I was working retail, so I should do retail, and he liked the idea of how it was. He was a bit naive and a bit spontaneous, shall we say, on how he dealt with things. So I ended up running the store up there. We ran out of clothes very quickly, as you have a tendency to do in that, those kind of situations. You know, all right, we had a hundred tons of ragging, but apparently only one ton of it was worth selling, and the rest of it was just rags. So we held on the idea of you just travel across the States and you buy old product, which was that delightful, not really thinking about it, planned to think it out kind of thing. I spent three years traveling around the States, redlining, buying vintage pieces, sending them back, doing the Rose Bowl shows, learning as much as humanly possible about denim and the process of how it all works as well as with clothing. And then we started having problems with that stock. And it was, again, that naive process of works. Let's open a factory. We've got a warehouse. 
the band that's put on a show. So <laughs> kind of opened the idea of a factory, taking the vintage pieces. Take This is where my pattern cutting kind of history came into this, was taking the vintage pieces apart, not the nice vintage pieces, but the ones that have already been knackered, taking them apart, building patterns from them, and then rebuilding them. So that was kind of where I went from retail, from production to retail to back to production, as I'm building things that way. But in a, in a way with with no real knowledge of what I was supposed to be doing or how we were supposed to be doing it with myself and a couple of other guys doing this. And we just went, we'll do it the way we feel we should do it, which was by taking the product apart, working out how the pattern goes, looking. And it was great at that particular time in New York, in the late eighties, it was like, you could basically, I need five, I need five people to work on the sewing machines. You would basically just, I need five people to work on the machines. You'd put a sign up in the window of the, the warehouse or the factory or the shop, wherever it was, and you'd have five people who work sewing machines within, within a day. Yeah, okay, that's it. We'll pay them cash, and everything's kind of happy. It was really that kind of kind of process of doing things, and I learned a lot over that period about how to put things together. And while I was there, I met Hiroshi Kato towards the end of the sort of mid ninety two ninety three, and it was uh, a, a moment of ah, oh, okay, uh, this is it. I've got that he was at the time he was fabric repping for a company called Chambre out of um, Tokyo, and he was like, okay, well, let's do this. And I just got to know him. It wasn't anything. There was no work there. It was just kind of a conversation. And I came back to the UK when Lee sold the business to a very large corporation that asked that very annoying question is, can I see everybody's green card? <laughs> we'll just do a quick visa check. I'm just going to go to the, um, I've left my visa at the airport, actually, as it happens. So <laughs> so four of us just like, yeah, we're off. It was myself and two Australians in the Kiwi and Matt and those. We just went, okay, this is great. This is a fantastic idea because we're living on a cash. And it's a terrible thing to say. We're living on a cash-based economy completely in what we were doing. There were lots of very messy stories I will not bore your listeners with. <laughs> it's like drinking and other issues that turned up at that particular moment as well. And so we were just like, okay, right, let's just go. So I came back to the UK with um, like two suitcases and nothing else, really, on what I was doing. And then ended up going back into retail, working with retail, worked with Carhartt here. So I set up the Carhartt stores here in, in London by, again, by I was working with Roger Wade from Box Fresh and um, Ben Joseph from Carhartt, well, they were parts at the time, they kind of had an argument, split up wherever she was. So I went with Ben to do the Carhartt stores here, which was a great learning curve to look at proper work where I mean, I'd seen Carhartt in the States, but I'd seen it obviously in, in the connected state. And I was lucky enough to actually go to Deerhorn in Michigan a couple of times I was there, which is kind of an, an amazing what they do. Back before they became what they are now, from nothing against who they are now, but it was like you were looking at this wonderful triple stitch, this heavy duck cotton, these amazing pieces. I mean, the Siberian Park alone, which is really just built for, this, for the pipeline, was like this almost uh, just a beautiful piece of clothing, which I, I can now look at it back saying, oh, that's quite amazing. At the time, it's like, yeah. It's minus 20 degrees, and I'm really warm. So you kind of had that process, but it was just really nicely made things. But back then, you couldn't go into a certain kind of restaurant or hotel if you were wearing car. Hmm. Not in here with workwear, certainly. You're not allowed here. You have to use the back. So it's this kind of process to what it was. But it was more when I came back and kind of got involved with it here, it started becoming or was building itself into becoming what it is now, which was more of a metro sophisticated market shall we say for want of a better description where it was like oh yes i want this but i'm not going to put i'm not going to be working on i'm taking pictures i'm not building a pipeline for anybody uh, so you kind of had that process it was beautiful to work with it here and watch that transition from old car heart with the triple stitch and the beautifully built pieces which still exist within car itself and it became more of a fashion thing 
over the tenure for a couple of years, like three years, I think I was there. And then I left that and set up my own store in London for a while, um, which was selling Japanese products into the UK market here, as well as working with Jap- uh, vintage pieces and limited run pieces with Nike, which I went to work with Nike for a while, developing sneakers there, and also Levi, building product with Levi, and doing um, consultations on denims with Levi, which was like kind of a dream job. And then I had a child. I've jumped over quite a lot. There was a lot in there as well. I went on a holiday a few times. I remember that. One point we might jump back to just briefly. Mm-hmm. You were traveling around the US for three years buying vintage pieces. Yep. That must have been mid-80s to late 80s. Yeah. So that was... 87... Let's get this right. 80s, yeah, 87 to 91, roughly. So that must have been a bit before the curve of when people really started hoovering the market for old jeans there were there were a few i mean there were a few people in it that were were running around doing it and it was kind of picking up when we first started doing it and again it was purely for a desperation that i needed we needed products for our store and that's what we were doing and we would go to these like tiny towns and you'd like go into a an unused shop it's kind of Segwaying back, it's where Mercantile name came into the era Mercantile because I saw these stores in Mercantile that had gone bankrupt. And I was thinking, I love that word. I don't know what it means, but it looks really nice because, again, I was a bit of an idiot. But uh, <laughs> the process. So we basically take these stores over and you put the sign up, we'll buy your Levi's for dollars, dollars, dollars in the window. And then you get people coming in and basically just selling you their old product. But there was, there was a competition. I was probably, I was aware of maybe five or six other groups of people that were doing it traveling and doing this thing so there was probably quite a few more than that so i think we were at the probably not the cusp but maybe the second selection of people going into it maybe there was maybe one or two people before us and there were also people that were a lot more focused on just denim i was doing denim because we had a good market for denim back in new york and it was quite easy when you went to the rose bowl because denim always sold well but my personal look was i was more interested in workwear and the way that would actually go, and I think it's like Red Wings back then and Carhartt back then, even Dickies or Ben Davis, those kind of things that had this kind of level to them. They were like there was a, there was a process here, it was really nice and Bluebell, and all those, which is a denim brand, but you have those other things coming in. Like, this is quite an interesting way of doing it. So uh, that was my passion, as well as I have several books on denim behind me, but I had for a while a reasonably good knowledge of the history of denim, which as most things as you get older, I'm fairly sort of drifted off somewhere else. But yeah, it was probably the quite the start of that. There were great things you could pick up, like amazing things you could just get, and but you wouldn't think too much about it at the time. It was like, this is an amazing, like a 19, as I've had, I think the best was, I've got a, I've got a piece here, actually, I've still got it, which is a, a piece of car art that's 110 years old. And I got it off a guy, basically just traded it with a guy for a, for a new piece of car. <laughs> it wasn't really a new piece of car because I bought it in the town beforehand. So was like, this is it. And it was a beautiful, like a boy with it. I can go find it if you want. But it's a, um, a, a beautiful hickory stripe work jacket. But it was got, it's got the labels Carhartts. Uh-huh. So it was pre-Carhartt, no, post-Carhartt, but pre-Carhartt and Sons. But I didn't know any of this at the time. It was just like, that's a really nice piece. And then I went to find out about it. So you kind of had that, that you were lucky to get that. You'd find things there because they had no value. I had some friends of mine at the time go through Florida because it was where you could pick up the most amazing military vintage. Because all the 
the greatest generation, as they delightfully call them in America, were passing away, and the greatest generation's widows were getting rid of all the shit their husbands had stored in the basement. So he was, you could go through Florida at that particular moment in time and just get amazing military vintage, amazing pieces of military vintage, which we were then bringing back and selling in Union Square or in Washington Square or selling in the stores as well as working through the other things and moving it through into the things. So it was, it was, it was an interesting time. I'd like to pretend that it was full of knowledge and understanding, but it really wasn't. It was really just like you were lucky enough to be in that situation to do what you need to do and do what you, do what you felt like you wanted to do and work with people that were interested in just the product. You knew enough about a big E or you knew enough about the way to look at Stitch. You knew enough the fact that they drew the arc in at a certain point. You knew these things because you knew you had to get a price for it when you were selling it. But it was acquired knowledge. It wasn't pre-acquired, you understand what I mean? You, you learn as you were doing it. And it was it was fun. It was really it was just more of a question of just traveling around and enjoying America and seeing it that the primary way of funding that was buying and selling vintage clothing. But yeah, there was a lot of it was I guess, yeah. I don't know, I don't I don't really think about it too much because it was such a long time ago and I would just happen to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time without any knowledge that I was in the right place at the right time. So you were just soaking it up. <laughs> soaking up some stuff, I could tell everything. Yeah, there was, there was, it was, just, yeah, I guess, I mean, looking back on it now, uh, I'm not a great one for retrospective. I don't look at things like that. I look at the, where I am right now is where I am. If you understand what I mean, things that have happened in the past happened in the past, but I'm more interested in what's happening in the next level and the next future. The things I've learned are really interesting, but for me, but I wouldn't necessarily want to bore other people with them. I guess. But it gave you a basis for what came after. Yeah, but it was it was a, a, a kind of a, nat, a an almost. I like to when I talk to my child about these things and and when I do these things at the universities, I like to explain to people like it's more of a career wedge. I started with a, like a wide area while I was working and slowly wedged myself into a very small area that I can actually work in from the experience I've had. Uh, but I don't regret any of that. It was a great thing. But yeah, I learned a lot, but I learned a lot more from taking it apart than looking at it as a finished garment. Do you understand? It was kind of like, it was, I was always more interested in the construction and why. So why does that have that pocket set up? Why does that work this way? Why have you got that secondary fold in the sleeve? Why have you actually done that with the leg? That was always the thing that drove me forward was because I wanted to understand the garment, whether it was a big E vintage piece from the 1930s or whether it was just something that had fallen in my lap, like I've got a couple of redhead pieces here, which these are amazing like hunting jackets. Why does the pocket do that at the back? What are these little metal clips for? Why do I need a skirt on there? What, so for me, it was always like, I want to know why. And you learn from that, looking the way people wore it and the way it was actually used, which I don't think you get quite so much now because I was getting people in that were coming in in the clothes. They basically come straight from the farmyard or straight from the hunt, wherever they've actually been. And they're wearing a garment now that we become, oh, it's a jacket. It's an amazing hunting jacket. And I said, well, they're actually using it for what it was designed for or in some of these places, what it evolved into from use. So that was always interesting to me. It was looking at wear patterns and looking at these kind of processes and why. It was never never solely just the garment. It was what's the garment for. 
And then how do you make them later on when I was in, in the factory in New York? Was how do you make that? Ooh. And then probably a bit too rigid in my, in my thinking is like, that's how you make that. That's because you've got to make it that way. So at that point where you suddenly developed ARN Mercantile, which I think with some leeway we might call a fast fashion brand. <laughs> how dare you, sir? It, it came into existence pretty rapidly. Yeah. I mean, it, it turned up quite quick. It, I would like to say, and I have it several times, it, was a, it definitely was no plan. There was no moment where I'm thinking, this is where I want to go. I had people around me at the time that were kind of confused about why I wasn't doing, why I wasn't approaching it that way. From a, but I was a bit like, no, this is this is not. I have a bit an idea of, um, this is a little bit off the point, but I'm fairly sure everything up to this point probably has as well. Um, it, it was, I have a thing about people who use their own name in a brand. It's like, is it a brand or is it an extension of your ego? Or is it an extension of your personality? And you develop, you develop the idea of, and you and I, Nick, both know who I may end up talking to. I'm going to very, very carefully avoid doing that. But it's, it's like you work with these guys who put their name up, like Denim or whatever it actually is at the end of it. And you're thinking, is he saying more about you? Or is it saying more about what you're trying to do? So when ARM Mercator, I never wanted to be that designer. Possibly some information my father gave me when I was younger because sometimes it's best to be behind the parapet and sit on top of it to have skills understand how things work build things and be the person that provides for the person that stands there going look at me I'm fantastic be the one behind him going yes look you are fantastic here's more stuff that makes you fantastic be that guy because it's, it's just easier for me I'm not I'm fairly sure my ex-wife will probably argue this one out but I'm not an egotist I'm not like that and when I make product, it's like I don't want people to think that's a piece by Neil Christopher. I want people to think that's Aaron Mercantile or that's Robin's dad, which I think probably says just the name say a little bit more about how I've approached it. Like I don't particularly want. You did a wonderful piece on us, and I think it was 19, 2013, 19, yeah, was that old? Uh, 2013, yeah. And you, I've actually got that up on the website still. Because it's like pieces of that in there because it's like that was really nice because we were under the radar, but we didn't want to be above. The, we didn't want to be on the radar. It was, a, it was a collection built for another purpose that became a collection. So it was like I built this for uh, this particular thing and it's become that, at which point I now have to carry on doing that, which I love doing. And it was an amazing experience and, and still do bits of it now. And I think this is great. And I met some fantastic people doing it. But I came into it with absolutely no, no clear plan of where it was actually going, or no clear plan of even how to make it. I could do the pans, I could do the, I could do the, I do twirling, I do all my own work here that I do anyway because that's my skill base, that's where I come from. But I, I could draw something that looks a little bit like a shirt, and vaguely understand what that's supposed to be like, and I do my, my, my design work I do on, on pattern. So it's like, oh, this is me building this white because of how I go. But So I never really considered myself a designer. I've always considered myself as, as someone who, which sounds horribly arrogant, but nothing against people with designers because I don't come at, come at a garment from that perspective. I come at a garment from what it's going to be useful, where how it's going to be worn and what I want to do out of it. And then sell those ideas to other people so when ar and mercantile started that was it was never the idea of it starting so yeah sorry yeah to answer your question earlier yes it was a fast fashion brand but 
you're not into fast fashion. No, at all. The, the, and you're about as far from fast fashion as I can imagine anyone being. Yeah, I do waste a lot of time during the course of the day. It's um, <laughs> um, it's I I think we all have a moment in our lives where we kind of we can kind of pinpoint certain things. And previously said I don't really live in a retrospective. There's a, there's a, th a thing I worked for some big companies that were not exactly friendly to the planet by any stretch of the imagination. And I didn't really think too much about it when I was younger. And then I had my child. And I kind of picked him up when he was maybe 30, 35 seconds old, whatever it was, still like damp. And I kind of looked at him like, well, daddy's kind of raped bits of the planet in a way that he probably shouldn't be very happy. I know my terminology is a bit off key, but you kind of work, when you work with like really big companies that are fast in that essence of we must make product, we must shift a thousand billion units to move this forward. You kind of have a moment when you're looking at something new and clean and like a, my dad used to call my child, when you have a child, it's like you have a blank piece of paper. So that's what you've got in front of you. That's a life that you're going to help build and work towards. I genuinely just wanted to be able to look him in the eye and say, yeah, I've, I've tried to fix the damage I've done as best I possibly can as he becomes older. So it was an, an approach there and having kind of worked with people that are more involved in it, a lot more interested at that particular time, for me, like 16 years ago, was kind of good to be in that place to say, well, yeah, there's something here that I could do something with and then start working with the idea of, Doing carbon offset production, doing carbon offset deliveries, doing ecological organic fabrics, working with dye houses that weren't polluting and weren't damaging, actually made a nicer garment. The fabrics were stronger, the colors were richer, the colors break in nicer as you're wearing them. And kind of working with the Crozo guys who developed buttons and all indigo or natural dyeing on those kind of things. I just felt the garment would grow. And we kind of worked on this idea of at the time, or I worked on this idea at the time, of this kind of a wardrobe concept. If I ever had any kind of concept in any of this, <laughs> that was one I used to grab onto. Was like, we, you can buy a pair of AR and Mercantile trousers on the first season, and I'm still going to be selling them. If you want to come back to those trousers in X amount of years' time, there they are. And with the AR and Mercantile, and I've got people even now who get in contact with me from the first two or three seasons. They're like, oh, I've got these buttons. Have you got those? My button's fallen off. I lost it in the washing machine. Can you send it to me? And we'll still, I'll still do that through the website. I go, oh, yeah, I've got boxes of buttons. Which particular color do you not want to get? Because it was that that kind of a process I was going through. It. And that was all of this was the idea of making something that would change with the wearer. It would become a garment that they could wander around the house in that they can go do the garden and they go to the shops and well, I didn't want to make something that was like, look, I'm going out. I'm pretty smart. My arrow works. It was like, no, I want you to roll in the dirt in it, wear it to whatever it is you want to wear it for and break it in and turn it into what it is. So we looked at price points. Everything was tried to, I tried to price point. So that was something you could do, which was definitely not profitable. Um, and <laughs> with the idea of building garments that would grow and change and develop who you are, or develop with who you are. They wouldn't take away from you. Do you understand what I mean? It's not It's not like, hi, I'm wearing, I'll pick a random, I'm wearing Chanel, or I'm wearing this, I'm wearing Dolce. There's no, this, you, you're you. Put your clothes on and be you, and break your clothes down and be who you are. And not everybody has that process with their clothing. So 
but it's also a level of it doesn't matter. It's one. It kind of goes back to when I used to work with Nike, and I was very lucky to get an awful lot of sample shoes from Nike because I always made sure I sampled them in my size. Uh, <laughs> if you want to call that luck. Uh, and I was in Tokyo with um, some friends on, on business, and I was wearing a pair of, I don't know if anybody knows these, but I was wearing a pair of the original woven to uh, Nike shoes, which are a beautiful shoe. It was a white shoe with a red stream on it. And I was walking, just walking on the street. I was out. They were comfortable. I was with some friends, and they were knackered. I mean, I had worn these things. They were really pushing the edge of, I didn't want to get too close to them. I took them off at night kind of thing. It's like, we'll put these outside because they need air. Uh, and a guy just ran down the street behind me. This Japanese guy, I don't know who he actually was, just came and said, your shoes, your shoes, your shoes. How much for your shoes? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're knackered pair of sneakers. And it's that idea that people will buy a box fresh pair of 200 pound, 300 pound sneakers and just hang on to them. Or do you want it so it's been lived in? And that kind of seed was sown then. And then later when I did Aaron Merkins, it was the same thing. It's like, I don't want it to be pristine. I want you to buy it as a perfect conditioned garment, shall we say, with a shape that will work towards how you are. So kind of the tailoring background, so you need to need something that actually kind of moves with you again, comes from breaking those patterns, those traditional pieces down in the States and putting them back together again. So you realize there was a curve in the sleeve. There's a section in the back like that. The bellows is there for a reason. And you know, these need to be there because you need to wear them. And when we did the denim before, it was like, you don't need your pockets here. You need them there because you're sat in your ass or down the chair. You're not sat on a fucking horse and you're not driving a tractor. You're kind of in this situation of what you're wearing needs to be comfortable for you, but it also needs to say something about who you are. It also needs to be part of you, not part of me. And that was kind of the, the idea behind ARM was like, I want that to be, when I had to have an idea about what it was actually going to be, it was like, that's kind of what I want it to be. I want it to be something that just stands by itself. But using the best possible fabrics I could use within my kind of strict-ish view on how they should be and use the best possible dyes I could use. And, and when you use organic and natural dyes, they break in nicer. It's like you look at a, carried away now with denim bits of fire flipping back into my slightly adult mind when you buy a pair of jeans and you're buying something that's like a 25 year a, tw a 25 year indigo that's a, like a dip dye hang twist with a left hand curve and you're looking at something like and that's it and you've got this beautiful natural indigo that kind of breaks down with you and it becomes part of you why do we only have that with jeans why is that the only area we're going oh, okay well that's got oh, look at the wear pattern on this because no we'll look at the wear pattern on this this has had a life and it's part of who I am and part of what I represent. And I get that people don't buy stuff. Well, didn't, well, don't buy Aero Mercantile. Didn't we were selling a lot more in Europe. They don't buy Aero Mercantile that way. They're buying something they want to wear. But I want you to be able to wear it for 10, 15 years. I want you to say, this is my coat. I don't necessarily, I want you to come back and buy more because I'm not an idiot. But I also don't, <laughs> I don't want you to sit there going, oh, I need to get next season's Aero Mercantile because it's different. I've got... There's a different color venture. It's a different kind of check. It's a different kind of tweet. No, it's it's a different kind of tweet because it's, I just liked that color this year. I liked that particular salt and pepper tone this year. I liked the way that worked this year. But if you want to wear the white, one of the best selling things we did was a white canvas coat with a blanket liner in it, which is a, a really just a really simple like mid thigh car coat shaped into the back, curved with the sleeve, sit very nicely. And it's like, I did that all the way through. And the same with the lawn pan, and the same with the shop waistcoat. 
By the way, all these names are made up after I've made the garment, not when I'm actually doing it. It's kind of, oh, yeah, what should we call it? Um, and I'm now in the situation with the stuff I do in Japan where I just give numbers to things because it's like, this is transitive. We've done this for X amount of seasons, and this is thing we're going to deal with. It. The idea was to make something that would last. Almost the complete opposite of fast fashion was the idea of making you something that works well and, and dipping into at that particular moment in time, dipping into the ecological areas and working with one back then, I'm like 16 years ago, you, you were kind of going to the shows and it was like, Oh, right. So you want to buy a, a hemp sweatshirt with the huge stripe across the front kind of thing. And you're going to look great in that. And so, well, that's nice, but you're not using these fabrics as, as well as they could do. You've built something because it's ecological and you're selling it because it's a green garment, which is great and fantastic. And we should be thinking that way, but you're also not making something on the day-to-day worth. You're taking something and saying, well, this is an idea. Everybody who wears ecological clothing or hemp based clothing, they are going to be a kind of deranged trust fund hippie. And they've got to have this thing and you've got to have white, white. Just no. You say, if this is a beautiful piece of fabric, Let's make it into a garment that can be worn every day that doesn't necessarily say that I'm supporting X, Y, Z. I'm not being sustainable. I'm, I've got to think like where. And it was that part of it as well. It was like seeing these guys making amazing fabrics, particularly in Japan when you're going to see some beautiful fabrics and then being like, we can't sell this. So why? Because people don't want to buy ecological suiting. People don't hmm. buy a green... <laughs> I have um, still got actually a couple of rolls of hair, which I can use occasionally for twilight. Um People don't buy a chino made out of this. It's going, well, why? Why not? This is a beautiful fabric. Oh, because it's not their market. So it's like, we'll take these fabrics and let's make them into something that makes sense. But let's not make the ecological, green, sustainable part of it the single most important reason why you're buying it. It should be... A... If you're making something... Please stop me if I get carried away with this, Nick. <laughs> if you're making something... The fact that you're making something sustainable, the fact that you're following ecological things, the fact that you're building a green thing should not be the reason you're doing it. It should just be how it is. And then if you sell and when it sells and you're lucky enough to do do those kind of business with it, which it is, you know, personally, this is, I'm lucky to be able to have done this for the last years of my life. And I'm, I, I feel that way when I'm doing it. But it's like I, I don't do it to stand in front of someone and go, ha, I'm eco, you're not. I said, look, my jackets are quite nice, aren't they? Or do you like my trousers? Well, they fit to the back because they're a slight curve to the seams. It actually pulls in properly. It doesn't crush your nuts when you sit down. And it's that kind of thing as opposed to, look at this, I'm ecological. So that's not how this should be. It should be, that's the standard. Let's make nice things. And that's what I try to do. You know, this uh, sort of really goes into what I've been going on about for a few podcasts now about... um, there's a lot of talk about buying better, buying less, um, sort of translates to keep buying but spend more. Yeah. But uh, that's not sustainable. Really, the central question is buy stuff that you will really use. And how do you, as a, a professional designer of fast fashion, dare you call me? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> how do you sort of make stuff that people will want to use? I mean, how do you make a cherished garment? Is it possible? I, I, you tell me, Nick. You've got my stuff. I cherish it, but that's because I make it. It's, um, but yeah, it's. I think the market itself is getting better. I think people are understanding it more now. 
I think the, the and I don't I don't mean per se in the consumer perspective. I think for a long time because I have been cursed and lucky to work in this industry since I was like eighteen years old. I'm fifty five in three weeks time. Two weeks time. Um, oh man, that's getting so close. Uh, I'm fifty five soon, and I look back at it and I think it's like the zeitgeist in this industry like ten years ago was about having an ecological part of what you were doing. Oh, this, we're, we're a green company with this, and then it's you, you, we sold it like it's fashion, like it's like the, the, I think it was it was uh, there's a great quote that's always something with fashion. This fashion is so unbelievably wonderfully disgusting. We love it so much, but we hate it in six months, and then we need, need a new bit. We're going to love, and so that's kind of how the industry approached ecological green and sustainability. Like this was something that was going to pass. Like this is something with this is a bandwagon. We need to get on it, and then people forget. And they'll go back to working on what the new orange is this season. But it, there's there's a core group in there that don't do that. And what I've noticed of late, I've been doing stuff particularly, and I genuinely do think this is a post-COVID benefit, which might be a pretty iffy thing to say, but after COVID and some of the companies I work with now and the communications I have with people now, a couple of guys in New York I work with who are very, very big brands who are connected to this because they can see that's how this works. The main problem with the industry is 90 plus percent of it. Well, am I allowed to say bad things about names now? Uh, like ASOS and Arcadia and Old Navy and these kind of processes where it's like bang, 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 bang. Buy this for $5, buy this for 10,000, buy this for nothing. This is 13 euros. Let's get this done. I remember being in a meeting in Levi like, right like 12 years ago and they were talking about making a pair of Levi jeans at 30 quid retail, 30 euros retail. This is what we want to do. And it's like, you are insane. This is not your brand. What are you doing? And it wasn't even a cotton denim. So it was like, we're not making a, what was it? We're making a man-made denim. So, well, first of all, that doesn't make any sense. And second of all, I'm leaving because I should not be in this room. I think I've walked into the wrong room by accident kind of moment. And I've had a couple of meetings like that over the years. People rambling on about organic polyester or organic nylons. It's sort of like, well, I don't know what that you're talking about. Because it doesn't make any sense to me why you're trying to take these two things and squeeze them together. When in reality, we should be saying less is more. But you can't have that conversation with people who primary isn't the consumer. Their primary is the stockholder. Because they're only interested in the fact that their business is based around the idea. And this is a thing I used to argue against a lot when people used to say it to me, but it's based on the idea of the the lack of longevity in what they're making. And when you look at how that, I picked this word very badly, that cancer has swept, swept through our business and what's actually happening. So you'll sit down with some of these huge companies and some very good companies that you would have really good feelings about and you listen to them talking about the fact that they're not that interested in making a garment that's going to last, but they are very interested in getting 600 quid out of you for a jacket. You kind of think, that's where this is wrong. That's what we're doing wrong. We need to build things back to the way they should be built. But I may have forgotten the question. But the, the, the process, I'm good at this, Nick, I drift. Um, is, is the idea of this has is, is got to be changed. And the sadness is kind of got to be changed by the consumer because you're only really going to start listening to it when they stop buying it. Because the companies are not in a place to be able to actually do anything. You do Primark, oh, we're doing 6% of 
recycle. We expect by 2035, everything we're going to do is green. Well, I expect by 2035 to have a diamond helicopter and swimming in a sea, but I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not saying here planning my life. I don't want a diamond helicopter. I should know I said that, but that whole process, it's not going to be, you need to start doing that now. You need to say, this model doesn't work because this model doesn't work for the planet we all live on, including, oddly enough, your shareholders and investors are all living here as well. So that's the difference. So you kind of have that process of big companies want to make money because they've always made money. They've made money by making things unsustainable. Well, they made, ironically, I'm going to drift back. Ironically, when you start looking at things, when I was redlining and traveling across the states buying things, I'm picking up pieces of Carhartt, 100-year-old pieces of car. I'm picking up like 50, 60-year-old pairs of Levi's that are still like wearable, are still usable. And you're normally getting off because the guy you bought, the woman you're buying off, her husband died. It's not a process of this is worn out. Just the guy that was in them before is now not here anymore. And yet now I buy that and I look at a pair of Levi's, which I don't do very often, to be honest with you. But when I have looked at Levi's, because my child goes down this, this kind of route as much as I fight against it as I can, but he does do this. I'm thinking, these are not going to last. You want to put these between two horses to see how well they're going to do. Let's have that conversation rather than the idea of what your brand is or your idea within your own context of what you think your brand is. It's not actually living up to your own brand, brand identity. Start saying we're making things that are quality product. These are riveted. This is put together. This is going to survive forever rather than going, here you go. These, these. I'm not going to pick on Red Wing, but I'm going to say I have a pair of Red Wings I bought 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago, and I've had them resold like 20 times. I feel <laughs> probably not that six, seven or eight times by now. And the last two times I've had them resold, the sales lasted less than six months because I'm a walker and I push them, I push my shoes. I don't get in cars because that's the, the process. But it's like you're not even making a soul that's going to last me. You're not putting together something that's going to build build your brand. I'm coming away from your brand that I've loved for 25, 30 years, thinking, what have you done? And it's if that's people like RL, RRL, you, you know, gone, but you have that kind of process when you're looking at these brands, you're thinking, why aren't you doing anything? You can't really blame ASOS and Arcadia and Old Navy or whoever it is you want to pick to for doing what they're doing because they're not seeing a process either. So it's got to be led somewhere. I may be rambling right now. Uh, it's kind of, thank you. But it's got to be taken to a point where we as consumers, when we can take our head off from the fact this is the industry we work in and realize we're also consumers and we need to not educate because I find that just unbelievably patronizing. But to build that into our product, to say this is how this is going to be, because you know, AR and Mercantile, through many different guises, lasted quite a long time. We did an awful lot of stuff. I still do bits and bobs now for the Japanese market there and Mercantile, but not in the same context I've told you before. Isn't it? With the idea of the fact that because of the separation in my own life and the things that I've gone through in the last like, four or five years, I've been like, I need to start looking at different ways of, of, of telling people what I'm doing and how I'm doing it or why I'm doing it. But you kind of end up with the process of, I I make an okay living making what I make. I haven't got a big house because I don't want one, because it's not necessary. It's that other part of it. You've kind of got to drive into someone that it doesn't matter. Your business turned over. I mean, I mentioned it in the, in the pre-log to you. So I did five years ago, I did uh, six months at ASOS. I'll do this. So I'm going to share uh, ASOS, and they have a returns rate on some of their products like ninety percent. And you're thinking, how on earth are you doing this? Are we just sending them back out? There was a story while I was there about a guy in in the warehouse. He was in the returns department of the warehouse. Got a pair of jeans back from a customer that obviously been worn, 
And he knew it obviously been one because the guy had left his wallet in the back pocket. <laughs> you, you sent this back. So you look at the consumer and you think, you've worn this out for a night. All right, mate. But then you've sent it back without thinking that you need to go through your pocket. So that's one area of what the fuck is wrong with you. And the second thing is they then sent those jeans out to somebody else. So they're recycling in a way, but in a way that doesn't seem to make any sense. And I had a conversation with, the, with someone who was there who dealt with the jewellery. And they have a, have a principle in the jewellery that something comes in, and it depends what the jewellery is, X amount of times before they scrap it. So if you're buying a ring, and these aren't ASOS rings, these might be, if you're buying a ring from ASOS, it could have been on like seven or eight other hands before you've got to it. And then when you've sent it back, they're just throwing it in a landfill because that's their business model. That's their process is to say, these are how much, this is what we've sold. And this is only ASOS brand. This is what we've sold, but we're not going to mention how much of it came back depending on which particular product is. So this is what we sold. And next week, this is what we sold again. But we're not going to talk about that. So you can they have a, a version of recycling that's kind of interesting on a level of that you've not reinformed the consumer that that's what you're doing. I mean, things like underwear, once that goes back in, that goes straight into the landfill. You're not getting somebody else's pants. I hope. Okay, that's a relief. <laughs> is it, Nick? It's a, it's, a, it's a moment of I'm not one. I'm, I'm fair. I'm, I'm confident that they're not doing that. But you kind of have that thing. You're thinking, this is, this, again, this is, if you know what you're making is so unbelievably shit, if you know what you're producing is of that standard, it's going to come back because it doesn't fit anybody. And all you're doing is posting it out, wasting money, sticking it in a new bag, re repackaging everything. So you're kind of destroying the environment anyway by saying, well, this garment's great because it's been through five hands, but you put it through five different plastic bags. You shipped it out on God knows how many times. You've already kind of costed yourself. It's not a real profit they're making on what they're doing. So you kind of think, approach it from that point and say, well, why are you doing that? Why would you not just make a better piece? I suppose if you're counting those trousers going out 10 times as 10 separate sales and not but counting so, the free shipping both ways. And the nine, the nine refund, bags. you send them out 10 times. <laughs> you're, not, you're not looking at that at a level of, oh, right, we've refunded nine times. We've made one say, so you, it's, it's that process. But then it's the other side of it is you have people buying a suit. I have a child, and I bring this up quite a lot because he's quite a big thing to me. He's quite tall. But it's you have a child, and you get, you get the idea that they're going to buy a suit, they're going to wear it once. I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to buy a suit. I'm only going to wear it once because I don't live in that kind of thing. So I'll spend 75, 80, 100 quid in a suit and then it'll just sit in my wardrobe and all right, just throw it away. It's just, it's the same thing. Well, well, why are you only going to wear that suit once? Because you're only ever going to go to one wedding in your life? You just don't want to be seen in the same suit twice? It's, it's a, again, it's that process where it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why people are doing that because they're not really saving money. It's, um, it might be a themed wedding, though. Where you have to wear this spe special purple suit with all the groomsmen. Yeah, well, that, again, would be a very worrying moment for everybody. But, yeah, I get that. If you're in that situation, you're doing that, yes, but then it's a suit for an event, and then you should have happy memories attached to it. You maybe don't want to spend 55 quid for it and find somebody else's wallet in the back pocket. <laughs> Although, if that's got 60 quid in it, you're up, aren't you? It's, uh, but it's, a, it's that... It's I'm probably not being very clear, but I find, I find all those things kind of really weird that we're sat in this world where it's acceptable to buy all that. It's acceptable to spend all your money on that. Um, I'm going to use a quote, and I get a lot of hassle from people who know me very well for this one. I am a huge Terry Pratchett reader, and a big thing. Oh, good lad. Uh, but it's the, and there's a Sam Vimes quote in that I've used several times, and I must admit, 
and being brutally honest, and anybody sees me, so I think I realize it. Sometimes I attribute it to someone way more intelligent than myself, or depending on who I'm actually talking to, I don't make it a bit of sound vibe. I'm sorry with this, but it's the sound vibe boot project, boot idea. So you basically, I buy a pair of boots for ten dollars, they'll last me a winter, or I buy a pair of boots for fifty dollars, and they'll last me a lifetime. Why not buy the boots for fifty dollars? This is where it's tricky. I paraphrase that a little bit because it's it's, it's, it's idea of social economics attached to the whole thing, but it's that. Is, is it, I mean, it's a it's a solid theory, but if you talk to someone, they'll say, "Well, what if you don't have fifty dollars? What if you only have ten? Well, then that's fine. In a way, that's I understand that, but then let's just make the ten dollars use ten dollars better. Let's just make that a better piece for somebody and operate so that I, way. I understand the the argument, not the argument, but the conversation about money because I'm not rich. I, I struggle sometimes financially with what's going on because I've, I've chosen this path. I wouldn't necessarily choose this path on other people and say, this is what you've got to do. This is my choices and the choices I've made. I'm just telling everyone what it might just in case the end of the room doesn't. But it's a, a process within it of like saying that's it. But there, there's a thing. It's like if, if you really think about it, if I can't afford the $50 boots or the $200 boots because the $200 boots aren't very good, but I can't afford that next next step, save up. Because by the time you had five years or five winters through one pair of boots, you've already got that money, and you're basically worn out your boots. It's not like you've got five winters of dry boots. You've got maybe half a winter of dry boots, and then another bunch of winters where they're just wet. They're not going to work for you because it's falling apart, and you're already buying the next pair because they've ripped out. If you understand what I mean, I'm using boots mm. and now If I'm buying shirting or suits or the idea, and it's, I think it's that idea of fashion over style, as well comes into this. It's like when I first started working in the clothing industry, it wasn't called the fashion industry. It was called the clothing industry. Now it's called the fashion industry and everything we make is fashion. But it isn't. It's about your personal style and how you're going to approach it. And so there's, there's, a, there's a lot more... It's a lot more to this than a slightly adult, caffeined-up, semi-professional designer talking about all this but it's a level of how we're approaching it on a bigger bigger scheme it's saying well, we need to start looking at what we're doing from that perspective and saying well do i really need all these things is the consumerism that i'm at considering i'm working in a consumerized business is the consumerism we're at what we want to be doing because is it is, is it that important you want to buy a We'll go back to $50, which I understand is that nobody really can afford it, and I'm not kind of stuck in that kind of loop with it. But it's, is it that important that you have seven pairs of boots if they're all $10 each? Or would you not rather buy? That's the point I was kind of trying to make with that one. Is if you're constantly mm. buying cheap things, you're never going to get past that point of like, I've only got cheap things. And eventually, life and the process within life is going to stop you being able to do that because you've spent too much money on things that just aren't working for you. So in, a, in an industry that I was with IRM Mercantile, we were very lucky because the people that bought IRM Mercantile, on the whole, the stores and the consumers that purchased IRM Mercantile, on the whole, I think were a quite well-educated collection of people. And again, I'm not saying that because they bought IRM Mercantile. I'm just saying that because when I talk to them, I would always say at the peak of IRM Mercantile, most of the people that bought IRM Mercantile, I'd be perfectly happy to sit and have a meal and a drink with. I wouldn't have a problem. I would always spend time with my buyers and always spend time with people that I, because I enjoyed their company. And I am a fussy motherfucker when it comes to people I'm actually spending time with. And it's like, well, that's just because I'm basically who I am. And that, that process too, but it's, it's not because I don't like people. It's because I have a very strong opinion on very things. And I understand that quite a lot of people don't really like that. 
So it's a, it be, it's kind of limited, but most of the people, nearly all the people I dealt with, particularly in, I'll happily give VMC a shout out on this. Those guys were just amazing. They were just really understood everything they were doing and they were interested in the process going through with it. And you would talk to them and the guys in Bologna as well, Prato, they were brilliant for what they were doing. And you have those conversations that made it more interesting to do the business. But it was about the aspirations of what I was trying to do against the aspirations of what other people were trying to do. I was kind of looked at like, well, I'm not looking to make a huge amount of money out of this. I'm just looking to get to the next season and look to make the next thing I can make. But the, the thing is, the industry, sorry, I'm going to segue off a little bit. I'm probably not making myself clear. The industry is set up in a way that you will start doing a brand with an idea that you were like, we, we did with ARM. It's like you want to do something that's not necessarily seasonal work in a way that was going to work would go this way but then as you start getting bigger you then get drawn into the pattern of you have to do everything seasonally you have to work this way you have to because that's what your consumer expects that's what your agents expect that's what your distributor wants this is the way that the business is run and that then becomes the fact that you're casting the the 50 dollar boots are then being made for 10 dollars or for as a 10 dollar boot because you need to keep moving it forward and I think that's part of the problem with the industry as well, that we've allowed that part of it to take over the other part of it. The part that was really interesting, the part that would make nice product, or the idea of a, your own personal style as opposed to what would be fashion. Is that clear? Am I being clear? I no, I think that's uh, very lucid. How dare you. It's, <laughs> it's that, that, kind of, that kind of process to me. And I've been in this industry a long time. And I've met a lot of people in this industry and I've done a lot of things that I would probably in later life regret if I believed in regrets. Uh, but if, but I've also done a lot of things that I'm super proud of and people that I've met that have really kind of changed that for me. But I've just looked into the bigger picture as I get older and as I start looking at how this is, I, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the young people coming into the industry that kind of have that vision. I get the impression that young people designers coming out of universities now are very keen to work in fast fashion hmm. it's secure i kind of I, I i've done work at lcf and i did some work at um st martin's and bits and bobs of girls with them met people and i did training as well for some people in some big corporations so i've sat down with them and i kind of it wasn't a path that was open to me and in a slightly more soft way of saying it. I kind of understand that they want to have a mortgage, they want to get a house, some of these things, and it kind of enables them to do that. Or in, in the UK, they just want to pay off their student debt as, but as quickly as humanly possible. But And there's a certain, yeah, fake glamour about working with those companies. I mean, I did, like I said earlier, I did a couple of months at ASOS, and it is like being on a university campus. You, you People aren't going to last. They're not going to stay there for any length of time. They don't know that when they've gone through the door. They all think they're going to do it a different way and they change it, but it doesn't work that way. It's like you are a commodity at that point. But that's not explained in the universities. That's not explained at that level or even shown because it just doesn't – people just don't seem to work that way. They kind of want to work on the principle of you are going to be a designer. You need to have a life. This is a great place to work. Then. Look how cool and groovy Topshop is. Look how fantastic Asus is. And what they seem to neglect is ASOS and Topshop have basically pirated, I was going to use another word then, I stuck myself, pillaged their way through what we would consider catwalk and high-end. People like Nigel Cable, who does amazing pieces. You will see the mirrors of that and the shadows of that drifting through the big market. That's not someone sat in the, in the design office at ASOS going, yes, I've got an idea. 
why don't we make a jacket that's roughly around the facts and Edwardian Explorer? No, that's nice. Let's steal that. Is how it's worked. But people are going into it from university thinking they can design. We're going to we can create fantastic garments because look at these fantastic garments because they haven't been educated up to a point within the university because the people some of the people in the university have come from fast fashion and are teaching fast fashion. I have and I'm not going to say names because I don't do that. But I have a somebody I've known for quite some time. His wife works at a very large company. When that very large company unfortunately no longer existed, she went off to work in a fashion college and she has taught people in the fashion college how to make clothes to work in a very large industry she has not told them to say experiment and go out there and enjoy and, and you know make something with seven legs on it build something out of paper mache make an interesting garment learn from your mistakes when you make the interesting garment they're training children in the uk or training children that's wrong training, <laughs> training people in the uk to be safe and not take risks. And the idea of not taking risk is to work for a large corporation and run through that. And but what you end up doing there is you end up with a vacuum. They've got no inspiration anymore. Which is why we're going through this whole piracy system of running back to the 80s is fantastic and the 70s is great. But we're going to do something in the 90s because we'll, at what point we should start eating ourselves in this? I'm not saying ARM Mercantile broke the mold. <laughs> There's no moment in that thinking, oh, that's so amazingly avant-garde. No, it's a jacket. It's that kind of process, but you still need people in there that are trying and pushing forward. I do stuff with the Fashion Council in, in the UK, and I listen to people there. They have the same kind of conversation of, like, how do I get a job at ASOS? I said, well, why do you want that? But when you ask them, they don't know why they want it. They just think it's the safe play. Do you think when uh, these big fast fashion companies start claiming to be making conscious ranges, um, putting heaps of money into research, uh, basically wanting to sort of rescue the planet, is it believable? No, it's total bollocks. Sorry, <laughs> a little bit too much coffee there. Uh, it's to it's just bollocks. It's 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 a marketing ploy more than anything else. It's like oh, this is re recycling. Some um, I don't want to get. I'm not going to get sued for this. I haven't got any money. It doesn't bother me. But um, you can have that conversation with them. And if, if you're turning around 5% of your products, if we're lucky, you're turning around 5% of your products with vague levels of it, eco, this is recycled. Or do you just mean it's recyclable? Because if you've got recycled on it, it's just, you've not, you've not done it then. This is, oh, this is made out of eco, we've made this at eco, eco cotton, have you? But you flew it here in a plane and you've sold, sent it to me in a plastic bag and you're putting in this thing. So you're not following it through. Sustainability is all the way through, but it just reads well in a window. It looks nice on the garment. And I've got no problem. I'm happy they're doing it. I would just like them to be a lot more committed to doing it. Because as soon as they do get committed to do it, the price, and this is an awful thing because I kind of understand the way this works. If you've got a company that's turned around and said, I need 1 million yards of ecological cotton, you're going to get that cotton at a price point that makes sense. Why you're piss arsing around nickel and nickel and diming it, obviously it's going to be expensive because it's an expensive thing to make because you're not making a lot of it. If you're going to approach this in the idea like we're mass production and we're going to do mass production, well, let's do mass production ecologically. Let's do mass production sustainably and say so that's how you're going to do it. Yes, there's going to be a knock-on cost, but it's not going to be the ridiculous knock-on cost it is right now. It's going to be a cost to them that makes a little bit more sense in their market. But then we kind of go back to the idea of do you really need 27 T-shirts? Do you really need these in that kind of process? Because your model isn't based around that. To tell me that you're doing, I think it's Primark that are guaranteeing 20% or whatever it is of their, their stuff to be eco. 
within 10 years, so well, just make 20% less product and you'll end up with exactly the same layout that you're doing right now. And it's better for you. You can make less and make more, if you understand what I mean. Like you're doing that system, some of this is something you do. An extra pound on a T-shirt isn't going to really kill anybody. It just means they probably can't buy 27. They're going to have to buy 20. <laughs> so I'm okay, I'm okay with that. Let's do it slowly. Let's do it step by step. But then you have the other side of it is we don't really have any time for that, which wasn't answering your question. So my basic answer to that question, no, I don't. I just don't. I'll sit down with people. I've done stuff at Nike over the years where they've said we're doing an ecological shoe. This is great. And thinking that's fuck awful. Why would I want to wear that? You've gone to the idea of still made something that you think the crazy hippie wants to wear. We've not made something that people want to wear. So you've limited your market position. And you look at these huge companies that are set up on this, this process of how they do things. Like we're a massive marketing business. We understand all this. But they haven't approached the ecological projects or sustainable projects in the same way. They said, oh, our main customers are not going to be interested with that. So they're already deciding that people aren't going to buy it. They're not giving the consumer the option to buy it. Then it doesn't sell. And they say, there's no consumer value in this. We can't do this because it isn't fair enough. Because you've not really pitched it the way it should be pitched. It's again the conversation I before. It shouldn't be this is ecological. It should be everything is, and then we pick and choose what we need to on top of that. So if you're going to say it's a pair of Nike shoes, and I'm not going to go at Nike, but they did about ten years ago, eight years ago. They were kind of interesting, but they were awful looking shoes. But the whole thing was recycled. And so if you recycled, shall we say, and then turn them into a pair of Jordans, I'm not a huge fan, but let's just say you turn them into a pair of Jordans, you're going to get a lot better market position because you've actually made a nice looking product out of it. As opposed to make something that I'm it's a virtue signaling, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the word. <laughs> I mean, if you've, if you've taken taken the expense to buy your virtuous, eco-friendly shoes, you want people to see it. I live this in a country why... that stands outside its doorstep, or used to, every Tuesday night. I think it was, and clapped for the National Health Service, and then suddenly gave them a one p fucking pay rise. It's like your virtue signaling doesn't help anybody. There you apart go. Apart from this you, is, and if you're going to be why... like that, buy something nice. This is why electric cars didn't start selling until they looked like something different, so people would recognise them. Yeah. And that's the point. So you're not you're not going to buy. It's um, it's it's the idea that to get new news, it's best to it's best to give it to people in an old fashioned environment. If you look at politics and you look at the way it is put across, something new. Not that in the UK we get anything new anymore, but if you get something new, it's normally delivered to you by a head of state who is surrounded by an oak panelled office on a leather desk and leaning across and he's telling you something new and interesting, but you feel happy and secure because it's what you're used to behind it. And when they're going to tell you something old, but they want you to make you think it's radical, they put it in a nice new modern office and they surround themselves with things like we're great and high tech. This is it. And you're thinking that's just the same old crap, but just differently packaged. So what we need to do is start doing it the other way around. So well, this is ecological product, but it's, you know, it's normal. Everybody can wear it. Everybody can buy this. You don't need all this packaging. You don't need all these kind of processes to it. You can you know, bring your own bag, which leads me to my argument about recycling, but we won't do that just yet because I get really annoyed about that one. Okay, I'll note that down for a little later on. <laughs> do you follow uh, Christopher Rayburn at all? Yeah, I liked his stuff initially. I liked what he did. He, I saw his office. Um, his, actually, I was going to, a brief period of time, with the takeover his studio, which was just around the corner from me here. And what he was doing when he was doing that rebuild military stuff was kind of amazing. Mm. And this is this is really nice. I mean, not original, but done in a, in a very original way and approached in a, in, a, in a way that kind of makes sense. You've taken something old and you've turned it into something really interesting and new. 
And the fact that he's kind of carried on with some of that as he's traveled through, I've not been up in the last like year or so because I just genuinely get to a point where I can't follow. If I fill my life with clothing, I can't make any because I'm just looking at what everybody else makes and it kind of free, it freaks me out so I can't do anything. I know that feeling. <laughs> when he was doing that, it was really interesting. Very much Raoul was like, look at this, Neil. This is amazing to go and look at. And he picked up these beautiful pieces and really thought out on what he was doing because he was creating from a limited palette. If you have, and I, anybody who's kind of started their own clothing industry or clothing, clothing label and, and kind of carried on not being a massively commercial success, shall we say, you you design and you work better when you have a limit on what you can spend and how you can do it because you have to use this and not all of that. You've got to use your brain to work out what the best thing you can make out of what it is to make something different, to make something interesting. Different is probably the wrong term, but just make something that's got life to it because you're using your mind to create as opposed to just throwing money at it until it becomes something. You understand? So I, mm -hmm. if we could have ever afforded a press budget at ARM Mercantile, I'm sure we've done a lot better than we actually did do, but I could never afford a press budget and I never did it because I didn't really like that process. But you look at people who put more money into their press than they do into their product. And it's like, well, that's, again, another issue we're saying. This is very important people see it, but people have a tendency to look anywhere if they're interested in something. And you're really just, it's, um, I don't know whether you get this one, I'm not sure if it's a good word, but it's snooker in the UK. Oh, I do. Right. Formula One racing in the world, they banned cigarettes, cigarette advertising on Formula One, Formula One racing. It didn't change Formula One racing. They went elsewhere for the money. The people that made money when they banned cigarette advertising were the cigarette companies. I'm smoking right now, and I appreciate the irony of what I'm actually saying. But it's that's what happens. As soon as you take away, people still want the product. If they're going to look for the product, and tobacco is kind of extreme on this, but if you're going to look for the product, you're going to find the product you like. And part of the joy of buying clothes is actually the interaction in the store and talking to people and finding these little tiny things for yourself. It's a bit more important than the other side of it. So you asked about Christopher Rayburn, and yes, I do follow him. He's quite nice. <laughs> but, but my point was there that uh, he is trying to bring more sustainable practices, making things more recyclable, etc., etc., etc. He was also on the podcast about thirty episodes ago. Oh, okay, sorry, lovely guy. Um, there's a big trend on now for people starting up pretty small companies with a very ethical, slow fashion type ethos. Now, I don't like the name slow fashion mm. because I think we need to drop the fashion term. Ethical sounds better. I suppose they're really doing what you did, but a decade and a half later. Hopefully with a lot more knowledge than when I did it. But um, we'll do it. But yeah, it's. Um, I like that. I, I genuinely say it's... I think we've gone through a period where larger brands and larger larger businesses have kind of dominated the small area of the market by knock-ons. And I like the fact that we've got people coming out saying, well, this makes sense. And I think that's where it will work because it's a groundswell. It's people that are selling in small areas or working with small businesses because the, the great thing, we didn't really have it too much. We did, but I didn't really pay too much attention to it. The internet and the processes, this, this opened you to an entire niche. You can work here. Your niche suddenly is the world. So whereas where I will have like six or seven people in London, they actually like what I make. When I start doing it across the globe, maybe that'll be seven or eight or 10 or 20 or whatever it actually be. It'd be more people because I'm content communicating with people. And the people that are starting these brands now are of a, are of a generation that this is second nature to them. I'm not. 
I'm fax and card and scissors and that kind of thing. I'm not computer literate by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't ever pretend to be because it's a, a confusion to me. And I'm, but I'm, with their, their section, I'm really happy that they're out there doing this because it will be the knock-on. It will be, hopefully, it will be the snowball that starts the avalanche where it starts working. This is where it's going to go. But as long as they keep doing it, as long as they keep sticking to their principles and they move forward as they're doing these things and don't sell out, they're going to be great. And I get the feeling they're not going to. It's the same as I live in East London. So we have this whole artisan thing, which is a, a term that I absolutely detest. But I'm aware that it needs to be used. But it's that level of like, if you're going to do something, do it the best you possibly can and learn as much about it as humanly possible and then produce a garment or a haircut or a loaf of bread or whatever the hell it actually is, the best it possibly can be and pass it on. But also in the same process, we should say, well, don't let the big companies bully you into doing it the way that they're doing it, which is how the market works. You end up being beaten down into this way that you've got to operate because the way the market works, it comes to, again to the retailer and the consumer to say, this is how we want, to, we want to be. We want to be like this. I'd like to drop my product in March or April or even May or give you, give you T-shirts in June when you actually can need them, when you want to have them. And I'm, I'm okay with I don't sell 4,000. I'm okay if I only sell 40. I'm okay with this kind of process as you go through because it makes, better, it makes better sense and it gives the consumer a lot more choice in what they're doing. When you consider the size of the market and the choice the consumer has, they're not in proportion at all. So these small brands, I love them. I love the idea of them. I love seeing them. I'm also really happy that they kind of burst into the world and they do what they want to do and they're not scared to make the changes. When they look at it, they go, oh, this is not where we want to be. Or oh, I like that, but I'm bored with it. We'll do this. And they kind of move into that way of doing things, which gives me hope. Hmm. Which, if I may say, is the only thing we really can have, isn't it? It's the best thing to give anybody is hope. Indeed. I'm very much a fan of um, guys like Tan May at lane 45 who will make the item of clothing you require from his range of designs in the cloth you want when you want it and take your sizing into account yeah which seems to me like it's it's, it's, it's probably a terrible business idea oh it is i just did it it's horrible business but it's still it's practical and it makes sense and as long as you're dealing with people, people like you, Nick, who have that kind of vision, that idea, and as soon as we work that way, yeah, it works. It works for them. And we did it with ARM. We did three separate block shapes, three different sizes of systems. When I sold the, the Asian and the Japanese market, it was a different shape. It was the same basic shape, but the pattern and the construction of it was well, the construction of the pattern, the shapes you put into it were different because I a lower rise or a different size shape. And you have this kind of process because you're dealing with different people. And it's kind of how it should be. What we've done is we've gone from the The international acceptance that you have to have a straight line because that's the way that works, or you have to have a certain one size, one size fits all, one size block fits everybody, it doesn't work that way. We're not all constructed the same way, but we've had years of mass production and that's where we've ended up. And now you've got small labels that are kind of coming out there saying, no, that's not how people are. We're not that shape. We're not that. We're not all these things. We need to work for it. And I, think, I love it when I hear about brands like this. I think it's an absolutely amazing thing. From my Daisuke in, in Japan who makes bags and works on the idea that not everybody uses this, uses it for the same thing. He does the same thing. He offers about 50 to 60 different basic shapes and offers an, an almost endless level of materials that you can get the bags in. It's a nightmare for him, but also you get the love out of what you're doing. So it isn't a so nightmare when you say it from outside perspective, but when you're actually physically doing it, it really gives you an interest in what you're doing because everything is new. Everything is unique. Everything has its own special shape that you're putting together for somebody and you're catering to you, the consumer. 
I didn't open AR and Mercantile on purpose, but when I started, started doing it, started becoming a thing, it was like, I want you to be happy. I want my retailers to be happy as well because I like it when they actually give you a chance to buy it. But I want you to be happy. I want the consumer to be happy. The best emails I've had in the last 15, 16 years of doing this have been from people who purchased it. They've turned around because I really like this coat. Or even people are like, oh, I love that waistcoat you did, but the pocket was a bit funny. Like, oh, that's a good point. That pocket does probably need to be moved. And I need to try and look at that because that is the point. I'm trying to work out where to put this into words. When I grew up, there was a tailor on every street. I'm not that old. I grew up, there was a tailor on every street, and you could get stuff made. My father did nothing but have all his suits. We'd use the term bespoke now, but back then it was made basically made to measure on what he was doing. And that was the process because you could do that. And it wasn't ridiculously expensive to do it because of the way the market worked and people would accept it. If I'm going to pay extra, X amount more, I'll have this small slice on top of it and get what I want. And you've done that with these guys. This is what I want. So they've made you what you want because at the end of the day, my son will laugh at me when I say this, and he always does. It's consumer power is what drives this forward. What's happened with this and many other industries as well is that the consumer doesn't seem to be the main point, isn't the main focus anymore. So these small brands are coming up with that idea again, which is that there's a great, I can't actually say it, but it's a, everybody realizes what you've got when it's gone. The UK has lost a huge chunk of its tailoring and a huge chunk of his clothing manufacturing in the last 20 years. And the irony of that is you've now got loads of small people coming in, learn irony is the wrong term, but le learning how to do it again and building stuff again because they realize it was great, but you don't realize how great it was until it's gone. So this is where you get these little ethical companies coming in, they're working forward to try and rebuild an industry. Although that may not be the main reason they're doing it, they're doing it the same reason that we end up doing AR and Mercator is because I couldn't find anything out there that I wanted to put on. I couldn't find anything out there that I wanted to wear. I couldn't find anything out there that actually spoke to me about what I wanted and who I actually was. And whether <clears throat> and how much of that resonated through the people that purchased Aero Market, I really don't know. But I get a nice bit of feedback when I do. But you have that process where that's what this should be about. It shouldn't be about how happy my shareholders are. It shouldn't be about me shifting 100 million units. It shouldn't be about me, whatever it actually is about having to do this. It should be about what you want because you're the consumer. But people don't listen to you. They listen to you, Nick, because you have a podcast and you're quite nice, but you understand what I'm saying in that process like across the board. When you're dealing with it, when you go and you, you do your online purchase, whoever, whoever it is is actually doing it, doing an online purchase, you're not getting any feedback. You're not pushing that forward because if you're buying a big brand. You've already bought somebody who's, I should be, if I was doing this properly, building autumn, winter 22, 23. I forgot what year we're in then, 23. But I'm not. I'm building... Autumn, winter, I'm doing spring, summer, I think. I'm doing autumn, winter 21 is what I'm selling now or work, working on right now to go into to, on that process because I don't have that idea of this. When you're a big brand, you're already two, three, four, five, six, ten seasons ahead. Hmm. So the consumer's got no input apart from, oh, we really started in yellow. Let's do it in yellow again. Yeah. That stops being your input and just starts being someone staring at a spreadsheet going, oh, look, yellow is nice. So yeah, I love these lovely sorry to say about I love these small brands. And I think it's really important that they're out there doing stuff. And I really want retailers to support them more. Small retailers to support them more. That kind of process would make more sense. Because when you get to a big retailer, they're not that interested. They give you a desire. Deliver a window, they how it is, and it's like this isn't one hundred percent. It's like that's not how this is supposed to be. Clothes are about you as a person, not about 
how much money you can make a store. They need to be in business. I'm not saying they don't need to be in business. I'm just saying it should be more along the lines of what you want. You should be able to, as a consumer, go into a store saying, this is what I want. The person you're dealing with should be listening to you and thinking, okay, that's kind of where I want to go. Now, not everybody has that knowledge. And as we travel further and further along this multinational, international mega mega structure, they are less and less people have that knowledge because we're not educated that way. But we need to start, and again, I don't like this term, but we need to start educating ourselves as consumers. Now, regarding recycling. <laughs> why, why? This is, this is, it started as a, one of those things you know you're getting old. It started as a small, annoying thing a while ago when I was, because I spent a lot of time in that car boot sales and traveling around markets and kind of things like that just because I enjoy it. And I picked up a bunch of, we had these, these Corona, which was a, a drink in the 1970s here. And there was a guy who just had loads of these Corona bottles. And on the top of these Corona bottles, we had deposit 10p on the lid. And I was thinking, why, why do we not do that anymore? At what point did it turn around that it stopped being the company's job to recycle and it became ours? I am happy to recycle and I recycle as much as humanly possible. And I genuinely think we all should do it. But I also think we should start looking at the corporation to say, well, hang on a minute. You're selling this to me with 18 levels of plastic on it. Why are you not offering me a recycling option? Why are you not more involved? Why is it suddenly... Well, suddenly, why have we built to this process? It's almost since the 1970s. Then we start building this idea that it's up to you as a consumer to recycle everything, but you don't have anywhere to recycle it. It should be um, at least matched on the idea of if I'm buying a bottle of something, rather, there should be somewhere connected to the company that I've purchased this from, a place for me to deposit it, a place for me to bring this back to them, or a place for me to say, okay, you can reuse this glass bottle, you can reuse these things. It's not. It's placed completely. 100% on the consumer to deal with their own recycling. And I find that this is a, a tiny bugbear and absolutely nothing to do with the clothing, a little bit to do with the clothing, nothing really to do with the clothing. Industry. It was a bit like, that's not who we are as people. That's the, the them turning around and saying, this is your responsibility. It's your responsibility to show us that we've got to be ecological. But it isn't. We're all on the same fucking planet. We're all sat here doing the same thing, looking at what's going on around us. And it's like, well, it shouldn't just be our responsibility. Corporations are made up of a lot of people, probably in their state, quite lucky, not a lot of people like me, but there are a lot of people they're made up of a lot of people. So surely there should be some process where they're saying that we should all be pulling together to do this, as opposed to it being completely on the consumer. That's my thing with it, Nick. It's just a tiny thing, but it's a thing that on a daily basis grinds me. It's odd you should mention the bottles, though, because here in Norway, we do actually still have that feature. Mm. So when you buy a bottle of Coke or whatever, you pay a bit extra and you get that back when you deposit it back. But I have noticed recently that more and more glass bottles don't have that mm. because they've discovered that it's actually cheaper for them just to crush the bottles and make new ones than wash them. It was a huge thing here when I was a kid. It was like you would actually go around looking for bottles to take to the local shop so you can buy things, which is probably a level of slight theft areas when I was a child. People just go, I have those bottles and wandering off with it. But that was the process and it worked because, yeah, so maybe Corona, whoever actually washed sweats, I think they actually did their main, their main business, their, their uh, business daddy, was saving money by washing these things. And it was a little bit like, well, we can charge you the same price and not give you the 10p back. So we just made 10p. And every bottle, and that's 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 it's a it's a silly thing in a way, but it's some of those things. I'm thinking, well, that's. I have an admission. I drink a lot of gin and tonic. Not a ridiculous people should talk to me about it level, but I drink a lot. <laughs> I drink gin and tonic, and I drink it with fever tree, 
if they're interested in sending me anything, which they probably won't, and I don't blame them. But um, and I get future. I like future. It's a really nice tonic water, but it's like I've got tons. Well, not tons, because I know she's a bit. I've got like eight bottles of fever, empty empty bottle fever tree. I haven't got anywhere where I live where I can recycle them anymore because we've just been through COVID and all the recycling bins disappear because those two things are connected. And it's that it's that level of like, well, surely on your part, and as someone who makes things and is aware of how expensive things are to make, it's like, well, surely it makes more sense to you to actually, you know, come and pick those up from the off-license. Or even when I get my shopping delivered or whatever it actually is, someone goes, I'll take your bottles and we'll put them in the thing. But we're not, maybe I just, maybe, yeah. England is a long way behind everybody else. Ignore the maybe there, but England is a massive step away from where that should possibly be. So when I see English brands doing doing this kind of ecological and ethical process, I'm really impressed because I know what they've got to go up against to get it done. But it's still not just my responsibility. It's not just your responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. And that's that I find really hard now to justify certain aspects of what I've done in the past with clothing. And I start looking at thinking, well, maybe making better product, which I try really hard to do and work with large companies. I work with, I'm not going to say it, I'm not allowed to, but I work with two guys in New York who are really, really, really good companies and know exactly what they're doing. They're really, really nice. But I have that conversation with them on a regular basis. Well, why do we not put something in place to help? It's not like their product is sold at a cheap price. Their product is ridiculously expensive to the point that I actually work for them and I can't afford anything they really make. But you kind of it's, it's like you, you should be able to put something in place here to say that you know we can actually help you out with this. But do you think it would actually be meaningful? That it wouldn't just be sort of virtuous, uh, sort of if you want to recycle your fifty thousand pound alligator skin jacket, we'll be happy to uh, to take it back. I think there's there's a there's a line we have to draw. Yeah, it's but it's virtuous signaling. Yes, it is to a degree. But as long if it's actually followed through, if it's an okay, we're virtuous signaling a little bit. Look how great we are. We're really trying to help the environment, but we're actually also helping the environment. It's like I'm I'm going to let you wave your virtue flag if you're actually doing something. When it gets to the point where it's virtuous signaling purely for the sake of doing it, I've got oh, it's all green. We've got that little nice little round recycling thing in the window. Do you see it? And it goes, but you're not really doing anything apart from sticking that plastic sign up, then I get a bit like, well, no, that's no good. But when it's actually, if they are going to do something and they're going to follow through with it, I'm not that bothered about it. It still upsets me because I still believe we should be doing this anyway. But I also kind of sit and think, if that helps you actually get people to bring stuff back, actually gets you to get the recycling done, then I'm fine with it. We have people to actually move these things forward. And as long as it's done properly and it kind of works, where I work with the a couple of seasons ago, we worked for a while. We worked with a company called EcoElf in um, Madrid, and they do amazing things, amazing fabrics. And I nearly always say the company name wrong. Where he basically is, um, he started off with the factory. Um, uh, started off with the factory. He started off with his idea of working the Mediterranean, pulling all the waste out of the Mediterranean, and turning it into fabrics. Because the Mediterranean apparently is filthy. So his tires and crap just dumped in the Mediterranean. So when the fishermen, this is how he first started doing this quite some time ago, when the fishermen would come back, half their catch was basically plastic bottles. And he was taking those off them, and then he was breaking them down and making fabrics out of them. And then rebuilding. So this is quite an amazing thing to do, and then the level of doing. He's now got, I think, eight factories around the world that he is in pollution hotspots. He's got one in Mexico that's bringing tires out of the Mexican Gulf and turning that into fabrics. And he doesn't make a big thing about what he does. It's quite interesting the way he's gone about it. 
He's not gone like, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm fantastic. He's just, this makes sense to do this. And that kind of thing makes me really interested because I push people towards his fabrics. And the thing with the, a company based in Amsterdam, uh, just before COVID, it's got a really interesting flag for a logo. Um, and they did some stuff, not really interesting flag. They did, they did some stuff and I pushed them towards it and they immediately backed away because they were worried about the price. And the price was only like one pound a meter more, one euro a meter more. And I get the fact you're working on a tight budget, but your jackets are semi-under quote. 950 euros. I'm not too sure why you're bulking on something that's going to cost you an extra six or seven euros in production. It's interesting you mentioned the bottles. So I found out just this weekend that um, plastic bottles, the PET type plastic bottles, can on average be recycled 10 times. But once they're turned into um, your typical polyester fleece, that's it. Yeah. And I, I, it annoys me that one of the smuggest companies in the world, <coughs> Patagonia, <laughs> can be pushing their polyester fleeces season after season, yet claiming to be so green and sustainable. Well, this is, again, that is uh, that that in itself is virtual signaling. That's where I get upset. Right? That's that's what you're saying is ecological, but it, it isn't really. It kind of is. It's like you've, you've made the first two or three steps on a long journey to do something. I didn't realize that's what Patagonia was doing all the way through. I did know there was an issue there. But this is a thing with recycling when you actually start doing that. You can't recycle up. You can only recycle down. So as much as I don't want to say plastic bottles are one, somehow one step above a fleece, that's kind of how that works. So once you've gone to a, certain, to a certain degree with what you've recycled, it cannot be recycled elsewhere. You can't like, move this thing forward, which is why I kind of go back to my glass bottle thing. It's like, well, if you're just washing the damn thing out, you're fine because that's reusable for what it actually is. You're not really recycling it, you're just reusing it. And that's, again, this concept of, like, if you're going to do that, do it just recycling. So reusing. So if you're going to say we're selling, I'll use your example, 50,000-pound alligator skin jackets, which every part of that just freaks me out. But, but if you're going to do that, let's not recycle it. Let's offer it to somebody else. So this is this, you know, this is a, this is a, a beautiful, you can re, reuse this jacket. We fixed the bits that were in it, and we scraped out the things we found in the pockets, and um, you can reuse it. So that kind of thing, I, I get that makes sense. But there is only so far you can go when you've got to. Then you've got to come back to the point of saying, "Well, do you really need all those Patagonia fleeces you've got? Do you need?" Because then it becomes a commercial process, isn't it? So, so if you're going to buy, if you only buy one Patagonia, and we are now picking on Patagonia quite badly here, if you only buy one one Patagonia fleece. Is that not enough? Make a better fleece. Make it last longer. Make it from wool. Yeah. Make it for something you can actually do something with. So that's the other part of it is the, the original materials. We shouldn't – if we can recycle it, we should be able to recycle it. If we are reusing, we should be able to reusing it. But it's best to use something that is sustainable, which is wool. And but wools are more expensive. But then if you're only buying one rather than buying ten, you're going to be okay, aren't you? I think even – I mean, will, would wool be hugely more expensive? No, I mean, the production run would be different and the way it's going to be put together and they're going to have to change the system, the way their business is set up and they've got to look for new... So there's all these other areas that are quite important because it's people's livelihoods is the next step along. You're not doing necessarily the person that owns Patagonia, but the factories they're using, you're not really going to go, yeah, we're not making these anymore. They're going, here's this knitwear factory, you've 75,000 people are now unemployed. It's, you've got to kind of look at it on that level. Well, that's an interesting one of these uh, points people bring up when you're sort of talking down fast fashion. They'll say, well, we have to buy fast fashion because how else are the factory workers in Bangladesh going to survive? 
Sorry, I find that as I shouldn't laugh. I just find that as a justification. Really, like really, you bought that god awful purple suit you, you do, wedding because you, you didn't want to go in Bangladesh suffering. Do you understand how they're making things in Bangladesh? Do you understand how that's a flat factory set up in Bangladesh? Trust me, the factory closed and they'll probably have a better life somewhere on the line. They, yeah, I get it. Sorry to be really kind of glib with that, but yeah, there is an entire production chain and there are people in that. And we can sit here bleating on about retraining because that doesn't help anybody straight away, which is where you need to put the help in. And it's not an easy issue. It's not like I can wave a wand and it'll all change because it's a huge monster it's a massive machine but in the same process steam engines were massive machines and now we all get on diesel locos you're gonna have to make the change sooner or later so let's start making the change now and if that involves you retraining the people in bangladesh to do other things if that involves you looking at factories in bangladesh saying well, we need to work a different way to work with it, it means looking at there's a river in uh, yeah a river in china that is blue because it's just basically effluent from all the indigo plants there. So if that's something we're doing, then surely we should be looking at a different way of producing that. That can still employ the same amount of people who are doing an organic dye. Mm. If we're doing something that will break down in a different way, but you need to make that change reasonably quickly and reasonably seamlessly for those people to have lives, but as a justification of fast fashion, which I have heard, and I have heard in the belly of the beast, shall we say, from people saying, well, we're employing an awful lot of people around the world. Because, yeah, but what kind of lives have they actually got? And what kind of process of employing? Yeah, it, they've got this, which is better than nothing. But I don't want to sound like, you know, semi-middle-class guy in the, in the developed world saying so, but it's like, is the quality of life what you really want? Is that kind of roll-on what you really want? And there's no easy answer. And I know why I can't come off sounding a bit like an arsehole when I say it. But yeah, there's a whole system that needs to be changed. And I am not the person to give you any real conclusions <laughs> to that. I would love to be able to. I'd love to have that kind of experience and knowledge to be able to do it. But that comes from somewhere who's going to have to say, right, okay, we've got to look at how this is being made. And if we are going to do this in wool or if we are going to do this in pure cotton, then we need to start looking at that system because there's people in the factories that are making the polyester. We've got to find a way of making sure they've got lives and making sure these processes are going forward. But we need to look at it on a entire level not just on the some again nothing against the little and i love the ethical companies and i am one so we can't be fully on our shoulders to do that which sounds like a real cop-out answer but it's it's not really within our remit to do it's got to be someone like whatever his name is now runs asos to turn around so this is what we're going to do and then have to put in place to make sure these people are going to be okay and they're going to be looked after but it's a question of you're asking about corporate responsibility to an entire group of people who have taken zero responsibility for anything they've done. If it wasn't in their best interest to carry on making the things that the way they were making things, all those people in the factory in Bangladesh, all those people producing that horrible chemical indigo that dyes their entire bodies blue in fucking China would be unemployed. They wouldn't have jobs. They wouldn't have anything. And it's not like the corporate are going, all oh, right, we're doing this for this. No, you're doing it for your profit margin. And if that guy in Bangladesh can get away with paying like 5p a fucking day or whatever it actually will be, he's going to do it because you're the corporate daddy and you're accepting that. So there comes a process within it. And it's very easy for me to stand on the outside pissing in because I am on the outside. But it's also the process like they need to take a certain degree of responsibility for what they're doing, which drifts me back into my recycling section. about You've got to take, if you're making it, you've got to take responsibility for it. And you have to take responsibility for every layer of what you're working with. So, yeah, I agree. It isn't great. And I appreciate these people are, are not going to have great lives. And I can't say that without sounding like a condescending dick. But it's a structure that was made 
and the structure's been bought into by people who knew exactly what they were doing. There isn't a moment. You look back at the last maybe 20 years of fashion history, and you look at disasters, and we talk about Bangladeshi factories, or you look at factories in India or factories in China, barely six months goes past without one bursting into flames, somebody doing this, some kind of collapse or some kind of process that. And every company that's worked in there, be it Old Navy, be it ASOS, be it whoever. Sarah, HM. Yeah, H&M. Yeah, this, the list is sadly endless. It's like they knew those factories. I worked in one of these guys for a very brief period of time. And I know these people went to the factories to factory visits. And you're going to tell me you turned up with blinkers on and you didn't look at what was going on around you. And then you'll turn around and go, oh, well, unbelievable. I had no idea there were no fire extinguishers. What the fuck were you doing there when you were doing your check? What is going on? And I'm sorry to be like rude and use a nasty word, but I kind of sit in that world of thinking, you know, this is happening. But you're not prepared to make the change because you're scared that someone's not going to repair an extra three cents on a t-shirt but that's not what you're worried about you're not you personally but i'm saying that's not what they're worried about they're not worried about that they're worried about how they're going to turn that profit margin around to their shareholders mm. as previously mentioned their shareholders live on the same goddamn planet i don't know how much money you need to not be affected by this but i'm fairly sure it's not what that is not enough not as much as they've got you understand what I mean? It's that level of what you're dealing with. So, yeah, it's, it's on everybody to do it. It's up to everybody to make those kind of steps, which does make me sound like I'm preaching, but it's also, it's not your fault. I don't know how much Primark or H&M stuff you've got, Nick, and I'm making sure it's not much, if any. And I know I haven't, but we're not huge consumers for this kind of thing, and we're not their target market. While their target market's buying into it, they've got no interest in changing. But they can't deny that's what's happening. They can't turn, Old Navy cannot turn around and say they didn't know Gap was being made here when there are photos of kids, 10, 15 years old kids, stitching Gap, Gap kids labels into Gap clothes. You can't say that you don't know that's happening. Oh, we do everything we can, we do due diligence, we didn't know that it had gone out. Of course you knew it had gone out. You paid the fucking bill. The invoice turns up. It's quite strange how they even attempt to say that they didn't know it was going on because it's a very disingenuous argument. Because that just shows the lack of control. But there's no, there's no, yeah. That's for me. I found that quite a, a really odd. We didn't know that. I didn't. They didn't know where we were making. We didn't know we were making it there. So where did you think it was being made? Is the backup? Mm. But you then deal with. This is where I got a screw on a tin hat. <laughs> Sit there with my tin foil cap on, going. So it's it's not a conspiracy because that makes out people who've got a brain doing it. It's a it's a new cycle. And it's an accepted accepted process to it. You're going to go, okay, well, well, and how many people have walked into, I seem to be picking an old Navy quite badly here. How many people have walked into an H&M or a Gap or whatever it is and gone, oh, I best, best not buy this because of those kiddies that are stitching the labels in? Because they've already forgotten. Because it's not driven in. With people who get, like me who's quite passionate, and I'm sure there's people out there who are a lot more passionate about it than I am, but we, we live by that process. Not everybody can. It's the... $10, $50 boot thing again. Sometimes it's easier to just forget. And I, I find that after COVID, or not that we're actually nowhere near after COVID, when you look at the COVID figures in the UK, but when you look at that process, and that now we're at the time we should really be thinking about this. Now is a time as a society, as a global society, we should really be thinking about what it is we're doing. Because though we haven't hit a restart, we've just had a pandemic that's gone around the globe. There's not anybody out there that's not been touched by this. And we have a chance to turn around and go, maybe this isn't the best way of dealing with this. Maybe we now have a chance to say, 
clear the sheets and let's try and work out. But when you look at someone in a corporate situation who sat there signing off or arguing, again, I've been in the room, sadly, of listening to people complaining they paid three pounds more for this jacket and they weren't prepared to pay it. And they're not realizing that three pounds are taken off that jacket is half a day's wages or a day's wages or some cases like a week's wages for the person that's actually making it. They don't have responsibility because they don't seem to think they need to have responsibility because as consumers, we don't hold them to the responsibility they should have. If I put out a garment, they are a mercantile, and it's not very good. Let's say, here's the thought, you purchased my jacket, you went like that, and it split down the back. I am the face of Aero Mercantile. I am going to be dealing with it, right? If you've done the same thing, and I know you've never done this, but if you put the same thing from ASOS or H&M, and you've gone, oh, fucking, and you just throw it away and you move on because it's a huge corporate daddy and there's nobody there's going to answer to it. You know, I'm going to have to hold you up there because I did actually, H&M did a, a retro collection about eight years ago, which was actually quite fun. Yeah. It was from uh, when they first started out when uh, the Henners shop bought the Moditz shop and the Moditz being a gents shop. They did some, some but they did a pair of tweed trousers, moon tweed, which I bought a pair of and I wore when I was cycling to work with a damp cycle seat which meant that Tweed wore through pretty much immediately. Mm. But being a bit sort of um, keen, I actually did manage to track down the designer in (laughs) H&M who designed them in Sweden. And he actually had a scrap of the Moon Tweed from when he was working on them, which he posted to me. Well, that's good. <laughs> which put a pretty human face yeah, on them. I mean, I mean, yeah. Apart, apart from that, they're trash, but that <laughs> one experience was a sort of no, fun. It, it, that is a really nice, that's a really nice story. That's a really nice thing that that's actually happened because I'm, I've got huge amounts of respect for you for doing that. I really do because I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, this is huge props to you, Nick. I can't imagine anybody else doing that. I really can't. And I have, like I said, I've sat in the beast and I've watched the. the the complaint system work and it just doesn't really go that way. It's just send it back and we'll put it in the landfill. Mm. And that's if you get to that point because there was a great line, I can't really actually, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it was the process of like every, in the UK, for every complaint you get, there is normally six other dissatisfied customers. I can imagine that happens a lot because mm. if you've spent three pounds buying a t-shirt and it breaks, it's just, it's not worth it. I think that's right across the board with everyone in the UK because we're not massively good at complaining unless we can do it anonymously. But it's uh, a process of what do you, what do, you do with this. You, if you if you factor that in and you say, okay, which obviously nobody ever does because it would make them look a lot worse than they really are. It's the fact that you did that, that went through and do it, and someone's going into H&M, maybe we should stop picking on H&M. Someone's going into a large high street brand and they're buying something from a fast fashion high street brand. They're not necessarily going to complain. And you're also, in a way, when you're working with that as, as a, possibly an unofficial knowledge of what's going on, so you know that if one in one in six people complain, so if, one, if only one out of six people have a problem complain, you're going to accept the fact that that's the people who's going to, the other five, whoever however it was, are just going to bite it and deal with it. But that's not going to cost you anything because you're not that bothered about their future customer as a, as a huge corporate. I keep making this about Unic, but I'm really not, just the way my mind works <laughs> on these things. So the, the, the massive company isn't going to lose that like we've lost a customer because as far as they're concerned, the customer base is infinite. 
They don't target. They have a shotgun as opposed to when you work with like people like myself and Nigel. We work with Nigel in the sentence before. When you work with people like small us, small businesses, it's like we're a fucking sniper. We don't basically we're lucky if we can pick off a couple of customers where they're just walking through the door, machine gunning their way through, hoping to God they're going to hit everybody because that's their mentality. And if one complaint and then there's six people don't complain, so what? There's still another thousand people going to buy them. Or twenty. Well, you've sold. You've sold it, so you don't care. Also, we've got the money in the account. We're going to do about it. So it's that kind of mentality where you start thinking. My son does ethics at school. So going back into this, it's my camera getting dark. I can put a light on if it is. It's just the light behind you uh, when you shift away from the windows. It's it winter here. I'm sure it's winter there as well. But this is an English yeah. winter, which means it's just dark. <laughs> <laughs> a strange hazy grayness settles across the country. I think sometime around 2016 it got in, and then suddenly we've been fighting ever since. We left the EU. I see we're coming up for two hours now. And really? I've got to put um, one on this thing. Is there anything you'd like to sort of mention in closing? Any uh, final rant? Uh, any uh, <laughs> promotion of your fine wares? Uh, I, um, I very rarely promote anything I make. <laughs> I just hope people will find it and like it. Is my general where, can, where can you buy your stuff now? Pardon? Where, who carries your stuff now? I'm uh, basically just in Japan now, working with people in Japan. My process, because I'll do, I don't know what I did this for, and I don't know what I want to get to. It. Over the last like, five years, I've lost both my parents and my partner and um, kind of just changed the way I was doing business. It had an effect, and I was a bit like I wasn't. I'd lost some passion, let's just put it that way, about what I was doing. And the process that I'm a single parent now, so I'm just me and the boy. So what I do most of my work now is just through freelance bits and gigs here and there. But we've done a I've done a collection in Japan, which is available only in Japan. Um, I was toying the idea of bringing it out and giving it to a couple of guys here, see if they were interested in looking at it. But I can't, in all good faith, say that I can produce things in the UK like I used to be able to produce. And until the UK steps into a process of being able to do it, I mean, it just it. This is a bit of a sad note, and I think we should probably end up on a high note. But I just on the, on the process in the last. I noticed the change as soon as the vote went through in 2016, in the way the way things were working here, and the way people were working here, and what was going on for the people I worked with, and the people I because I, I had uh, at one point like seven people that worked directly with me. Only one of those people was a UK resident. To my knowledge, and I have said in contact with most of them, only three of those people are still in the UK. So it's like I could do work with them, but I couldn't bring it back into the UK. So I can't make the things cut in the current situation here. I can't make the things I used to make in the way that I wanted to make them. Want to make them. So I made stuff in Japan because I know a lot of people in Japan, production from history in Japan, and made it kind of not exclusive on purpose, but made it in the Japanese market purely for the fact that that's where my production was. And that's where my distribution was, and that was the way it worked. And when ARM Mercantile first started, I used to say, and all the way through, if I couldn't walk to the factory, I wasn't going to use it. And that's how it always worked. Because I had all my factories were within cycling a distance. I never got in a car because I just don't drive. I don't. I'm quite freakish on those kind of things when I get. Into you did. You did mention the twenty resoles of your red wings. So. <laughs> Well, that'll be why, because they get a lot of use. Um, but it's that, it was always that with me. It was like when I first came to London, it was an idea of like, I just don't want to buy a car. I don't want to be in those kind of situations. It was a fact. I don't know whether it's true or not, but someone put in my head about 
the energy used to produce a car when you look at the energy saved from you from using the car never actually levels up so every car is a net energy loss and it was a little bit like i just don't want to do that here and it, i am a bit extreme in those areas i'm aware so when i set up our mercantile it was like i want to be able to walk to the factories i want to sit there look at the guys i'm working with and have the conversation about what i want to do and how i was going to do it these are the small runs i'm going to do this is the process i'm going to do it wasn't a necessarily complicated business but it was complicated because of all the different fabrications i was using so it's quite important for me to be involved in my ex-partner called me a control freak it was a lot more to do <laughs> to the fact that I just wanted everything exactly how I needed it to be to go to the end user so I wouldn't waste anything. It was more of a question that I wanted to make sure, yeah, I'm a control freak when it comes to that. I don't know why I'm pretending that I'm not. It, I was a control freak with it. So the current situation with Aero Mercantile, I cannot currently see a point where I can make it in the UK anymore. And if I can't make it here, it kind of crushes my general ecological process to it and my way of doing it. So unless I relocate, which is something that I'm kind of looking at right now, and when I look at my customer base, ARM Mercantile was good in a couple of stores in Europe. We did a lot of business in Japan and a little bit to a reasonable amount of business in the US. The UK was always my worst market. Always, always my worst market. And I kind of understand why, because of what I did here and the way I work here, it wasn't necessarily dropping into the way UK stores work and the, and the way they kind of have the mentality. Also, I'm not having to go at anybody. I quite like getting paid when I've made stuff, and the UK is not necessarily very good at that. There was a couple of accounts when I did first open up, but I ended up having to get quite unpleasant with people to get get money. And it's not it, nothing more than the fact that I'm a small family business and I simply couldn't absorb loss. So it was the UK was always my problem. Everywhere else was fine. Everybody else understood what was going on, even Italy, which has apparently for some reason an international problem. I never had any problems in Italy, never had any problems in Switzerland, never had any problems in France, never had any problems in Germany. Always, always, always had issues here. The best things I ever did in the UK was when I did the collaboration with Nigel Cabon and everything sold because it was all through Nigel and I didn't have to get involved with it. So that was probably the only time I ever remember I had any kind of significant retail presence in the UK. So for me to produce now, I would need to be somewhere else. And I can't be anywhere else until my son finishes school. That's really depressing that the fabrication uh, has gone so far downhill. It is more a question of when you look at, I don't mean to be nasty. And when I say what I'm going to say, but there's, there's, a, there's a process in England where nobody's really interested in making. They're interested in creating. When I talk about clothing industry, it's like you won't get, when I first started, when I was 13 years old, I worked in my father's factory. It was a good job to be a seamstress or a tailor or that kind of process going through what was going on. It was a good job and people were happy with it. certainly a good pride in it. Something has happened in the UK where that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. That might just be my experiences, but my experience has been that's not how it is. And when we came out of the EU, and I'm sure other people are having this problem in the UK as well, probably not to the same way that I was because of the, how we were working here. When we came out of the UK, we lost a, a lot of. I'm going to sound like a fucking right wing nightmare at the minute. I'm going to say, I really don't mean it on that level, but it's that level we lost an awful lot of incredibly skilled workers that have no reason to be in this country. But it was that kind of process. I and mean, I watched factories just disappear. And it was really sad to see that happen because we lost, and I think I mentioned it earlier, we lost a, a huge skill base in this country because the people who had the skills didn't want to be here. Not that the country didn't want them here, 
I think a, a vast tract of the country was completely oblivious to what was actually going on. But we lost that here. In the last year and a half, I mean, I think the UK is still running. A, I think I've read somewhere that it's, uh, if you look at the top five countries in Europe who are suffering from COVID, you have to add two, three, four, and five together to get anywhere near how bad it is in England. And it's not, it's just not working. We're not, we don't have that processing. My father worked in the clothing industry or manufacturing industry in the 70s and the 80s. And you watch that skill drain then. And we're kind of there again now. You can see these people. There's still some great factories here, but they are either massively oversubscribed on what they're doing or they're really struggling to find people that are prepared to make something. And again, we see it's kind of drifting to that area and I don't want to kind of do a broad brush with this, but drifting to the idea of it's a lot easier for them to make 20,000 sweatshirts for ASOS than it is for them to make 50 for me. Yeah. And it's a, it's a process here. And I mean, it's, we, t I t I've also, I took some time out. So be over break over the last couple of years because it wasn't going on the family. I took a bit of time out and it's not necessarily easy for me to restart here and do what I'm doing. Where I'm a lot more comfortable with the way things are done in Japan, where the way they're actually putting things together. It's, I use Japanese fabrics. I'm still using my buttons. I got them from the crozer buttons I was getting from Panama. I'm still doing those things that I was doing before, but I'm actually taking a whole section out of what I'm doing, which was the transporting it all to the UK to get it made section has gone. has gone. And I don't like the fact that I can't support my industry here in the UK anymore. I don't like the fact that something that's going on. But in the same context, I'm a bit confused about where we as a country are still going. Okay, Neil, this was a huge pleasure and it's been a long time coming. So thank you for talking to me today. Well, thank you for sharing the time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. If you'd like to check out what Neil's up to, you can find him on Instagram as Merck. that's A-R-N-M-E-R-C. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's Well Dressed Dad. Um, you can follow the podcast on Instagram as Gomology Podcast. I always post uh, little clips of the new episodes there. You can find the blog at welldresseddad.com. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch to let me know what you think about the podcast, to suggest guests, to... Um, offer sport then you can get in touch at welldressedad at gmail.com so until next week if you'd like to leave a review brilliant otherwise see you again in a week bye bye